Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This is the 30th anniversary of the start of the Tiananmen Square protests. A lot of times the end of the Tiananmen Square protest is marked on June 4th. It's when the massacre happened. And uh, in Hong Kong, they mark that every year. We're going to have a discussion about where Tiananmen Square is in people's imaginations. And we're going to talk with Justin C. He's a visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern University. Good to see you, Justin. Good to see you, Jerome. And Wen Huang is here. He's the only person I knew who was at Tiananmen Square. He's an independent journalist and writer. His memoir is The Little Red Guard about growing up in China. Great to see you, Wen. Great to see you, Jerome. I, you know, I think most people, if you ask them today, there'd probably be two things that they remember about Tiananmen Square. One is the tank guy, and the other is the Statue of Liberty there. What was your impression as someone who was there who saw a Statue of Liberty? What does that mean to you? In those days, the Statue of Liberty didn't really mean much to me. I was a graduate student, 23. I was studying Shanghai, and also I was a journalism student. They call international journalism. That was a new discipline that created after the death of Mao. In 1988, I became one of the first group of international journalists. We were trained to write in English and try to tell the China story to the world. And during Tiananmen Square, all the whole protest movement, press law was a very important component of it. Because uh, in those days, a lot of a group of intellectuals were greatly influenced by the American journalism, like were read all the presence men, how the independent journalism. And so at that time, in 1988, there was a movement to make China's first press law, meaning at least we could guarantee some form of independence. Because previously, or even now, journalism or journalists is called the mouthpiece of the Communist Party. So that was very important to us. But you didn't really have an idea about human rights or ideas about what a liberal democracy is or want to vote for your leaders or anything that we would consider kind of a staple in, in our I minds. think most students like me in those days, the democracy was a very vague term, and we had heard about it, but it really didn't mean much because for most of us, we took to the streets to protest with on very concrete goals like anti-corruption, and then China was going through a transitional period from state planning economy to market economy. Suddenly, the prices of tomatoes used to cost five cents suddenly became a dollar, and it became so expensive. In those days, students, we were college students. Under communism, we used to be guaranteed a job after graduation. Suddenly, those were the changes. We could face the prospect of uh, not having a job after graduation. Just like I think in Venezuela, people, they want to overthrow the government. And you ask ordinary people whether they are looking for democracy, they might be looking for anti-inflation or because the price has gone up. It was the same thing with China. When you ask what democracy was, was very, very vague, but it sounded very nice and very Western. We really didn't know much. And people didn't want to necessarily overthrow the government. They just wanted the government to do better. They didn't want them to not be corrupt and control prices. Exactly. And one of the things we wanted the children of the senior government officials not to have too many of the privileges because the commodities were in short supply, and they would buy TV from Hong Kong, and then would bring them back, smuggle them back, and would sell them at huge, very hefty prices. Ordinary people couldn't afford it. So that was very concrete. As for 
democracy. For myself, when I came back, usually came to this country, people say, you were a democracy fighter. I was always cringe at the thought. For most of the students, it was the fun of, you know, the mob mentality. We would take to the streets. It was much more fun to go into the class. But for me, it was a little bit more important because we felt like uh, press freedom would be good for China. But how good, we didn't have a very clear idea because for years and years, we lived in isolation. And the only thing that we read in the early 1980s was a lot of the Western philosophical or political books start to swarm in, and we began to read a little bit, but uh, it was very, very superficial. When, why don't you go back and remind us how the whole protest started, how the Tiananmen protest got rolling, and what it was meaning to people who were, who were getting involved? The movement started April 15th because of the death of the liberal Communist Party leader, Hu Yaobang who, at the very beginning, he was considered a liberal Communist Party leader because he was more sympathetic to the students' uh, protests which happened during those in the 1980s, 86, 87. And then the conservative faction of the party, they demoted him, and then he died of heart attack. So when he died, people felt that they should support the liberal faction of the party, the reformist faction of the party. So that's why they started the whole morning activities. They tried to use these activities to give the reformists within the party the upper hand. So from the very beginning, it's not what we call pro-democracy movements. It's more like how we try to reform the Communist Party. And then the movement started April 15th, the funeral, and then people started in Beijing and in Shanghai. You know, we delivered a lot of the eulogies and then tried to, just like with other Chinese poems, writing these essays to criticize Deng Xiaoping and some conservative uh, leaders. And we made sure that at the very beginning, it was not an anti-Communist Party movement because we didn't want to give the Communist Party the excuse to crack down on us. So every day we try to tell people not to uh, use violence, not to loot stores. And then some of the citizens tried to join us. We didn't want them to join us. We worried that they could tarnish the reputation. And also we never use any anti-government slogans. And then we just saying we want anti-corruption, we want Communist Party reform, we want press laws. So that's the very beginning. But then till the very end, the one we want another Gorbachev because Gorbachev was seen as the reform-minded leader. But when he came to visit China, it was such a big significant event for the Chinese Communist Party because when we were growing up, the Soviets were the most scary thing. We used to have all these drills to wrap up everything in a bundle and saying that Soviets would going to come to invade us, we have to run, or the atomic bomb. And then suddenly, after th- years of antagonism between the two countries, they actually start to nominalize the relationship. It was a big monumental event for the Communist Party. But when Gorbachev visited China on May 13th, and then a lot of people hoped that they could give the conservatives some, even the reformist leaders thinking that they could give them the, the excuse to let the government evacuate Tiananmen Square so they could have the ceremony. But then all the radical faction of the students' leader, they decided to stay on. They didn't let the government, Deng Xiaoping, the conservative faction, let them lose face. And then the ceremony took place at the airport. And then that was when I was in Beijing. I traveled there because uh, in those days, everybody supported the students' movement, and we didn't even have to buy a train ticket. That was the main reason I traveled to Beijing. 
And we just went on there. I was so excited that I only have a toothbrush, and I went. And then after that, we were there hoping that Gorbachev used that to put more pressure on the government, and they didn't back down. And then so in the later stages, then we started to say, done with the Communist Party. But we still used the Maoist tactic, saying that uh, maybe we could mobilize the workers and use what Mao did to succeed. And so from the very beginning, we considered ourselves the elite of the Communist Party. We want the party to reform, rather than what Americans see as a pro-democracy movement, or we want to overthrow the government and set up American type of democracy. So it's not. Why do you think it became such a monumental kind of landmark for a lot of people? For other people, I mean, in China, it can be pretty buried today, and young people may not know what it was at all, as history sometimes gets buried in China. But all around the world, everybody knows Tiananmen Square. The reason that Tiananmen Square became very monumental is because another movement in 1976, we call the April 5th movement, that means before Mao died, the premier of China, he died too. For some reason, the Chinese are very fascinated with this funeral arrangement. So the premier, Zhou Enlai, he died, and the people, they have this pent-up anger because after years of the Cultural Revolution and people suffered tremendously, and a lot of people took to the streets to mourn the death of the Premier uh, Zhou Enlai. That was April 5, 1976. And later on, after Mao died and the reformist leaders came to power, they called that the People's Movement. That actually serves as encouragement for the June 4th. And people think that if we could use this massive People's Movement, we could accomplish something. And we could eventually actually change the government a little bit. You talk about why didn't people think about overthrowing the government. It never occurred to us. And we deliberately actually make a point of not mentioning overthrowing the government. We try to couch all our movement into a pro-government thing. We say, we want the Communist Party to succeed, but we want you to make these changes. Because we knew that the Chinese government, the Communist Party, was so powerful. If you try to say that overthrowing the government, you could get crushed very easily. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Wen Huang, and we're discussing the 30th anniversary of the start of the Tiananmen Square uh, protests, and Wen was there for a bit as a student in 1989. And also with us is Justin C., and Justin's at Northwestern University, a visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies. What do you think it meant for people who were outside of China? What a number of people, I would say, among uh, Chinese Christians on the West Coast, both in San Francisco and in Vancouver, was that it was kind of about identifying with the people who were there because they were Chinese. And so when they were fighting for democracy, it was Chinese people standing up for themselves. And then when the crackdown happened, it was the Chinese government killing their own people. And they sort of identified with that killing, and that's what made them sad. So what it seemed to mean for people in the communities that I was part of was a sort of identity politic in which they sort of just identified with them as Chinese people. And Ian Ang, who is a scholar in Australia, writes about this in her book on not speaking Chinese. She wonders whether to be a part of the Chinese diaspora means that you automatically identify with Tiananmen on the sole basis of a sort of shared mythological Chineseness. 
All right. So that's some pretty heavy uh, movement there. June 4th is always uh, marked in Hong Kong sure. with candles and all around the world people uh, still mark June 4th with candles, but most prominently in Hong Kong. And there's these big evenings uh, where they get out with the candles. What is the symbolism there? What do you think they're marking? Is it this identity politics that you're talking about, uh, this outside identification, or, or is it something different? I think the Hong Kong movement is a movement for redress. They keep on saying, redress 6-4, right? Redress June 4th, ping fan luxei. And what that means is that they want the Chinese government to acknowledge and apologize and redress the situation of the massacre. And the idea is also that uh, what they are doing is, again, not trying to overthrow the government. They're trying to say to the government, look, we might even be patriotic. We certainly want something in China's favor, but there is this wound that hasn't been addressed, and this wound needs to be healed. That's the language. When, how does that resonate with even what you were trying to do as a young international journalist in this new profession? You were kind of arguing for openness. It was almost a um, intellectual opening there, a liberal opening. And that seems to be the thing that Hong Kong took away. Yeah, I remember like in April, for the first time, we had a Australian teacher who taught us uh, how to write in English in the journalistic style. And sometimes she would bring some of the clips from Hong Kong South China Morning Post. That was a very prominent English newspaper in Hong Kong. And a lot of the stuff we wouldn't have read in the Chinese newspaper, we got the information from the South China Morning Post. And we thought that the Hong Kong was such an advanced society. And then we were kind of aiming to emulate Hong Kong. And then I think a lot of people, because Hong Kong geographically was just so close to China, and it was so easy to access China, a lot of people tried to smuggle back the sunglasses, those uh, 70s, the nylon, you know, the bright colored shirts, uh, the, the, the things. And also... Democratically, we felt like even though it was a colony, but people who have been there just uh, talking about the press freedom. And then so we got a lot of information from there. But just like you said, I don't want to add something. When the movement started, I remember in April, my dad passed away. That was the beginning of April. It was a tomb sweeping day. And I went back for the occasion when I came back that night. And then a group of students, they were gathered. They said, there's something major is going to happen. So we were there, and then we heard this head of the students' union. He was giving a talk in the auditorium saying that uh, we need to promote uh, openness. We need to be like Hong Kong, and we need to have press freedom. And also, most important thing is the leader, of the former party secretary, he passed away. He was a liberal-minded leader. Now the conservatives are taking over, and we need to uh, take to the street and then to protest. To me, everything was abstract terms about the democracy in Hong Kong and then the press freedom. But one thing was for sure, we thought at least if we could have some independence, we could write like the Hong Kong journalists did. Because a lot of times when we covered in events, we were very limited. But a lot of Hong Kong journalists, they were in China then. They were a very limited number, and they could write about it. So there was a difference there. And also, I was very nervous when I heard about we were going to take to the streets and make all these demands, because growing up, my dad was persecuted during the Cultural Revolution. And for years, it was very 
a scary thing to criticize the government. I remember in 1986 when I graduated in my undergrad studies, we read something about Chairman Mao about how he was a womanizer, all the lovers. So I went back and talked to my dad. And instinctively, he just stood up and closed all the windows. He said, how dare you say things like that? You never knew what it was like. Because he knew that sometimes I wasn't careful. I couldn't ruin my whole career. So that was the generation that the impact on me. So back in April 1989, when they talked about taking to the street, I was very scared. But then, you know, as more and more students joined the protests, and then you get emboldened thinking maybe the Chinese government was going to forgive the students, allow this openness. And just like I talked about in 1976, uh, April 5th, and they call it a massive people's movement. So there was the contradiction there. That's Wen Huang. He was at Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. Today is the 30th anniversary of the start of the Tiananmen Square uprising. And Justin C. is with us as well. He's a visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern University. After the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about Tiananmen Square and the Umbrella Movement. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's the 30th anniversary since the start of the Tiananmen Square uprising, and we're talking about it with Wen Huang, who was there. He wrote about growing up in China in his memoir, The Little Red Guard. Also with me is Justin C., visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern University, and he's written on uh, public spaces in Hong Kong in his dissertation. And I wanted to talk some about the Umbrella Movement We were discussing before the break about how Hong Kong has had this long marking of uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre on June 4th. And what kind of lessons did the Umbrella Movement and um, the democratic movements in Hong Kong kind of get out of this? How do they take something like that? I think it's difficult to talk about the uh, relationship between the Umbrella Movement and Tiananmen. The reason for that is because uh, there were so many parties that were factions that were involved in the Umbrella Movement. Certainly, the group that uh, was recently convicted of inciting the Umbrella Movement, the Occupy Nine, as they're called. And they were convicted just recently, and they're facing seven years in prison. Uh, Their sentencing is April 24th. That's correct. Uh, That group of people uh, certainly was inspired by the events of Tiananmen. The uh, Baptist pastor, uh, Zhu Yuming, was one of the uh, leaders in Hong Kong in the 1980s advocating for democracy and certainly helped a number of uh, the people who were at Tiananmen, uh, both spiritually and materially, uh, as events unfolded. So that group of people would be very influenced by Tiananmen. But there's another group of people uh, who were involved in the Umbrella Movement who have even taken to protesting the commemoration of Tiananmen. And the reason for that is because they feel that by focusing all of their attention on China, the focus of the movement is not on Hong Kong anymore. Right? And so they call themselves localists. And they want a focus on local urban issues uh, relating to Hong Kong itself as a city detached from China. 
So those groups of people sort of were coexisting in the umbrella movement, which made politics around Tiananmen quite difficult to talk about. The memorializing of June 4th every year, I mean, it's like a ritual that is observed by a group of people, and it really is It's more about the Chinese government now, though, really, isn't it? Is it really about June 4th and the massacre of these innocent people? Or is it more about, this is about, like, we feel like our freedoms are going to go away and we don't want that? One of the songs that is often sung at the memorials is the song titled The Wound of History. It's a song that came out of Taiwan shortly after the massacre. And basically the idea is that uh, Tiananmen represents a kind of wound in understanding China, especially on the part of people who memorialize Tiananmen. And so the claim of the redress movement, especially in Hong Kong, is that if a government is built on this wound, it will continue to fester. And so by memorializing Tiananmen, certainly, yes, they are calling attention to human rights abuses by the current government— But they are also claiming that the current state of the government is built on this wound that has been allowed to fester since Tiananmen. All right. And how does that sound to you, Wen? When you hear about June 4th commemorations, do you think they're really protesting today's government or today's leadership or yesterday's events? I think like for people like us who witness the protest movement, our purpose is to hopefully that people could remember the event. But most of the people who are organizing these events are quite agree with you. It's more or less protesting against the current government. To us, like that's part of the legacy because each time I see Hong Kong, when I see the, the June 4th movement or the Umbrellas movement, we felt like that's the only bright spot of this legacy because uh, when we left China in 1990, we were hoping that the Chinese government, the communism, would uh, collapse But instead of collapsing for years and years, they get stronger and stronger, and then they're taking over the world for a while. But then back in China, they have done such a great job of whitewashing the movement. The younger generation, people like my niece and nephews, they have never heard about uh, the June 4th movement. Or there will be a brief mention talking about the counter-revolutionary disturbances. And they don't know the details of that movement. And like every year during June 4th, the only thing you hear about the rest of certain dissidents, they try to organize a small-scale activity. But the only thing you hear about is Hong Kong. They have this huge candlelit ceremony at Victoria Park, right? But to me, it's that people in Hong Kong, they were very active during the Tiananmen Square, when we were in Beijing, or the tents they sent to the students' hunger strikers were from Hong Kong, and they knew more about democracy than we did. And then now we see the whole thing still going on there. I'm sure they use as a statement against the current government policy. They want to preserve their own freedom. And a lot of people in, the, in other parts of the world, like during June 4th, organized by the distance, it's also a more of a symbolism. It's a, a statement against the current government regime, especially Right now in China, it's getting worse and worse, more repressive, and the freedom of speech and the press freedom, you know, is so limited, more or less a statement against the current regime. I mean, ultimately, you know, there was a crackdown, and is that part of the legacy of Tiananmen too? that really the government is not going to to allow freedoms. They're going to do what your father said the government would do. They're going to crack down, and that is their only move. 
right now is the only thing that the part of the the movement is splitting to half. The first part is the Chinese government. They believe that uh, we need to be really uh, tough. And then before they even become an Arab Spring movement, every small minor movement, especially during June 4th, all the anniversaries, they're very nervous. They have initiated a lot of the tough crackdown on freedom of speech or on the social media movement, all that stuff. But the ordinary people, they seem to be, that's the other half, is they want to move on. It's the Chinese mentality that uh, something tragic happened. The only thing to move on is to forget about it. So I don't think the ordinary people, when you talk too much about June 4th movement, they don't want to talk about that either. It feels like uh, rather than here in this country, psychologically, you have to confront the past in order to move on. But people in China seem to have the mentality, you try to forget, and then you just move on. The most important thing is Life is getting much better under communism, and uh, Chinese have more money. So that's the most ordinary people they're concerned about. So that's the sad part of the legacy is that uh, I see more vibrant uh, movement in Hong Kong than in mainland China, or even here, overseas Chinese, is they're very segregated, a small group of dissidents. They're still advocating, but they were infighting and everything, and uh, the, a lot of people they don't have a good reputation, and then the only bright spot is probably Taiwan and Hong Kong. We felt like they were inspired by the students' movement. But on the other hand, I think if you talk about the legacy, the main part is the Chinese government, I think, before the Tiananmen Square, the massacre, they thought that they could do anything. No one would care. But they did not realize that when the tanks moving to Tiananmen Square, CNN was broadcasting live through all over the world, they start to worry more about the international aspect of it. Sometimes something even bad, for example, if they want to sentence a dissident to prison, or something, they would choose Christmas Day because Christmas is a slow news and nobody would uh, write about it. Or they would hand it down the sentence in a very remote area in China where a lot of journalists wouldn't have access to it. So I think that uh, in a way, they come to realize that they are part of the international community. And also the most valuable lesson is they also learn how to handle civil unrest without using guns. I'm talking with Wen Huang, and it's the 30th anniversary of the start of the Tiananmen Square protests. Wen was there for a stretch when he was a student in China. Justin C. is with us from Northwestern University. He's a visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies. And that makes me think about what happened with the umbrella movement and the very long amount of time it went and how scared the authorities were to crack down, and they did it very slowly but eventually they did break it up. Um, do you think they were thinking about you know, how to do this? I think so. One of the things that the students kept on saying in the streets is the world is watching. So there were a number of social media broadcasts from the streets, and there was some speculations that the government was actually sending the military down to take care of this. And because of those speculations, people got increasingly scared until nothing happened. And then the speculation went around that maybe the Chinese government started to get scared that there was too much speculation going on on social media. What was fascinating to me about the breakup of the Umbrella Movement, and I think this relates to the the verdict that was just handed down about the Occupy Nine, uh, is the usage of the legal system to break up the movement. The final uh, removal of people from the streets 
from the occupation of the streets during the Umbrella Movement happened because the bus company sued the protesters. <laughs> and the court handed down this order to evict the protesters from the street. And that's how it happened. Uh, it's the same with the Occupy 9. The general gist of the case is that the so-called Occupy 9 conspired to incite a public nuisance. They obstructed the way, and we could not continue our daily life. Correct. And so it was a nuisance to the public that had to do business in daily life. These are very boring, mundane usages of law. But I kind of feel like the mundane aspects of the law are being weaponized. It happens here. If you want to protest, you've got to do it the right way or you're in big trouble. And certainly the case that lays out the reasoning for the verdict sort of lays out who applied for what permit for what purpose. It's a very boring case to read. But I think that's the weaponization of banality almost uh, in breaking up uh, the umbrella movement and the aftermath. And I think that speaks to Wen's point about the difference between Uh, say, overt militarization to crack down on protests, and then the usage of banality uh, now to crack down on protests. I read quotes from Donald Trump where he talks about Tiananmen Square and says, well, the Chinese government was strong. And that was a you know, it was a strong reaction, and that's an admirable thing to be a strong leader. Do you feel like there is a authoritarianism that is coming back into vogue that is about strength? When? I think so. I think right now a lot of people probably here in the U.S. and also in China, they felt like even a large number of Chinese, if you talk about Tiananmen Square, those who have members of Tiananmen Square, they feel like the Chinese government might have done the right thing because when they see uh, Arab Spring, how all those countries, they fall into chaos afterwards, they say that we needed strong hand. If Deng Xiaoping had not cracked down on the students' protest movement, and China would have fallen into chaos. And the reason China is becoming very strong is because the crackdown. And also because uh, after the crackdown, the Chinese Communist Party have learned a valuable lesson saying that if we defeat the people, we have to develop economically to improve the lives of people, pull people out of poverty, and this way they will support the government. So in a way, because the lesson they have learned and also the lesson they have learned, the collapse of communism in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, so they get to uh, prolong their life, even though right now I think a lot of Chinese, they are big Donald Trump supporters. They feel like uh, the whole world needs a strong hand. Like uh, people always ask, saying that China, over the past 20 years, you build a lot of the skyscrapers and then the super highway or high-speed rail trains because they could do it so fast. Within a year, the Chinese government said, let's demolish the buildings. There was some protest movement. They immediately cracked them down, and they built it so fast. In the U.S., in San Francisco, uh, in Los Angeles or San Francisco, you talk about uh, years and years building the high-speed rail, and then in the end, didn't work. So people, there is this authoritarian state. After years of learning this, maybe it was right for the Chinese government to crack down on the movement. We need a strong leader. Otherwise, uh, what are we going to do? You know, China will be just like Egypt or any of the other countries. They're completing chaos. Well, do you think the public in Hong Kong kind of starts thinking the same thing? It's okay to crack down 
on the movements because you know, you know being strong is better and more efficient. I don't think it's so much strength and efficiency. That's part of it. But I think it's also security. Because as my friends in Hong Kong would say, these are middle class values. Right? In order to have a stable business, you need a stable economy. And if you want a stable economy, you have to have security. And in order to have security, you need strength and efficiency. And if you need strength and efficiency, you need an authoritarian government. That's the logic. And so in Hong Kong, it's not just pro-democracy people who were on the streets during the umbrella movement. It was also people who were neo-authoritarians who were on the streets protesting the protesters. Right? And so one of the things that can be said about the umbrella movement is indeed that there were a lot of factions that were on the street. It seemed like all of Hong Kong was on the street. Why? Because the question of what it meant for Hong Kong to be the home of people was called into question. And so a number of ideologies were openly questioned during that 79-day period. Do you think that kind of questioning stuck? What's the hang time on that? Because it seems like people are uh, getting along, moving on pretty quick. I was talking to a student that I saw on the train who mentioned uh, my work on the Umbrella Movement. He's from Hong Kong. And uh, he said, wow, five years. It's been so long. I said, five years is not long at all. And he says, no, five years is very long. It's like distant memory for me. I, I was like in high school when that happened. And I thought, wow, this guy has really sort of moved on mentally from the state of the umbrella movement. But what's really interesting is that legally, nothing has moved on from the umbrella movement. The sentencing of the Occupy Nine hasn't even happened yet. Only the verdict has come down. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit strange. It's sort of like culturally in Hong Kong, sure, maybe people, ordinary people may have moved on. The legal apparatus... Not so much. <laughs> so do you think they'll uh, throw the book at the Occupy Nine? They could face seven years in prison. What would your guess be? I don't like to predict the future. <laughs> um, but I do know that some of the people in the Occupy Nine are saying that they're going to take full responsibility for whatever they're doing, for whatever they were charged with and whatever they were convicted of. And that's sort of an invitation for the government to throw the book at them. In some ways, you could say that they're sort of trying to egg the government on to impose the maximum penalty because, as they say, the world is watching. But I don't know. I feel that even though the world is watching, the world might just watch them throw the book at them. What do you think will happen on June 4th with the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen? Will Hong Kong... Um, light it up like they used to, or all the way. There will be a demonstration. It will take place in Victoria Park. There will be candles, and the wound of history will be sung. <laughs> when? I think that this year there seemed to be a different movement. Like Justin just said, there's the localist movement. They feel like uh, for years and years they are part of mainland China. They were supporting the Tiananmen Square movement. There is movement in Hong Kong right now. They see themselves as more of an independent entity, and then they want to make June 4th part of their agenda rather than the agenda of the, the mainland government. They felt like for years and years, when I visited Hong Kong, people felt like returning 
to mainland China was such a patriotic move. They finally, you know, it was uh, centuries of humiliation. But now they realize that it's not the right move. It's they want to be an independent entity. That's what the Chinese government is afraid of. That's why they are really tough. They put pressure on the court to deal with these people. But I think the main reason is they don't want. The activists in Hong Kong to be like those in Taiwan, saying that we are become independent. They want Taiwan, Hong Kong, especially Hong Kong, part of China. So that's what the Chinese government is worried about, and also worried about the whole movement is going to be the impact on mainland China. The students in mainland China they could have an impact this year, the 30th anniversary. It could be given the excuse for another. Uh, protests or demonstrations. That's why there's such a rush to settle with Donald Trump over the trade deal with Europe, Western Europe, because when unemployment rates going up or because of the trade wars, they know that disturbances will occur. So that's what they're worried about. They try to settle this deal before the anniversary so they could avoid another kind of mass people's movement. Wen Huang is a writer. He's the author of *The Little Red Guard*, a memoir about growing up in China, and *A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel*, about more modern-day corruption in China. And Wen was at Tiananmen Square uh, 30 years ago, and this was the start of Tiananmen Square's uprising 30 years ago today. Also with us has been Justin C. He's a visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern University. Thank you both for joining us and talking about. Tiananmen Square, thirty years on. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Tom. Is there an advantage to grass-fed burgers? Coming up after the break, we'll have our Food Monday segment with WBEZ's Monica Eng. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Chicago Tribune recently rated the top 25 burgers in Chicago, and just about the only one using grass-fed beef came from a place called DMK Burger Bar. The restaurant is celebrating its 10th anniversary. WBEZ's Monica Eng recently talked to the chef and co-founder Michael Cornick. For decades, Chef Michael Cornick has been known for fine dining in Chicago. His celebrated MK restaurant closed in 2017, but over the last 10 years, he's also been working on sustainable fish restaurant Fish Bar and DMK Burger Bars with his partner David Morton. Today, they have eight locations. As he celebrated the 10th anniversary of DMK, I sat down and talked to him at the Sheffield location, and we talked about how environmental concerns drove him to source exclusively grass-fed beef. And what he considers the perfect burger. I started by asking why he wanted to get into the burger business to begin with. I felt there was a niche, and David and I got into the burger bar business with just a handful of kind of rules that the recipes were going to be created by me and other chefs down the road that fit into this idea that 
whatever the flavor profile was, it was the perfect burger. That the fries were going to be the same hand-cut fries that I had been doing at many, many restaurants for many years, um, of aged russet potatoes cooked in a combination of beef and vegetable fat. That They would be seasoned with salt and pepper, and they would be served with various toppings uh, that are part of Chicago cheddar fries and, and then some other things. That we were going to make premium shakes. We were going to use premium ice cream, malt powder in all the shakes, high-quality chocolate, high-quality fresh fruit during the seasons that we do fresh fruit shakes and things. Um, and that we were going to center around craft beer. It was 2008 when we started working on this. We opened in 2009, and the craft beer uh, movement uh, nationally and in Chicago was certainly uh, of great interest to people who were having a burger and fries. Okay, and so right behind you, over your shoulder, here at the DMK on Sheffield, I see the big letters that say grass-fed beef. Why did you decide that that was going to be so important to your burgers? I mean, to the point you put it on the wall, so it's like, uh uh-oh, if we don't get that, um, the wall is a liar. Right, and it's interesting because, you know, when I started thinking about what was happening in the environment, and in the environment especially of animal agriculture and what was going on, it seemed obvious to me and I think to many chefs that sustaining corn-fed beef, uh, feedlot factory processed beef was going to be detrimental to our wellness as a planet, our wellness as a community, and that the change was not going to be easy, especially in what we consider the prime steakhouses, that that was a textural flavor change that was going to need to evolve over time. But in ground beef, we actually see uh, the ability to have any textural experience that we want because we're choosing which parts of the animal that we're going to grind. And we're determining the fat content. And the flavor is actually seems to be more appealing. So you've thought a lot about the perfect burger what are the elements that you've come down to as, you know, the essential four or five elements that make a perfect burger and, and, and the way you make it at DMK? The quality of the beef is first and foremost. The cooking method to get that caramelization on a direct griddle. The quality, size, weight, and feel of the bun, really important. And then all the condiments, high-quality cheese, ripe tomatoes and sherry vinaigrette with salt and pepper. The onions are pickled in rice wine vinegar. The things that we add to the burger are all about the same idea, balance. The right amount of salt, the right amount of acid, the right amount of fat, the right texture to add to the experience. So when someone bites into it, they don't have to pick it apart in their head. They just get delicious. So that's the delicious portion that I know you guys have spent a lot of time doing, but it's also not as easy to find local, somewhat sustainable, grass-fed beef. Tell me, when someone says, oh, I've heard I'm not supposed to be eating so much meat, it's terrible for the environment, what is it about a one-third pound really delicious burger that, um, that sort of makes more sense than, let's say, a prime cut of aged whatever steak? Well, the environmental impact of corn-finished beef really starts in the cornfields of the Midwest. And it's the nitrogen runoff that I think is probably the most detrimental aspect of monoculture corn. 
And so what we're talking about is the fertilizers that they have to put in the ground that it, when it rains, run off into the rivers and then down to the Gulf of Mexico, creating the dead zone. Correct. So that's the first, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this. The second piece of the puzzle is obviously that we are seeing a dramatic change in soil activity, microorganisms, all these other things that were part of the healthy rotation of crops for a long, long time. I would say also just in general the support of the large companies that are that are moving to both control the cost of seed and the cost of finished product overall has seen more family farms close over the last five decades than open. The second part of the feedlot story is the environmental waste concentration. These animals are eating a lot, so they have a lot of animal waste. And when you concentrate animals in a feedlot that densely, you have a problem with the runoff of harmful product to the environment. The sort of natural process is, you know, and well-defined in omnivore's dilemma by Michael Pollan. And have them walk around, dropping their cow patties here and there, and then um, fertilizing the ground. Yeah, and then other animals eat and cherry. So, so that's not going to happen. We're, we're processing 400 animals an hour in a commercial slaughterhouse, and those slaughterhouses during many parts of the year are, are operating at 16, 18 hours a day. So we have a huge demand for beef in this country, and that's not going to change quickly by a one or two burger restaurants or a handful of grocers focusing on in the introduction of grass-fed beef. Now, we also serve uh, bison uh, and turkey here as well, and I think that what we're seeing slowly is a group of people who are being more and more educated about food. Their food choices include an awareness of where and how the food is grown, raised, harvested, manufactured. You're seeing a greater concern for young people about understanding that there are some practices both in in uh, you know beef and and poultry but also in, in from the the sea and farm fish and, and and wild fish that are just not sustainable that their children won't be able to enjoy scallops if we over harvest scallops or that and so the 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 beef industry is controlled by just a handful of of large producers and they are not really open to fundamental changes that would make their cost of production go up. And truthfully, most Americans um, have less money to spend on food than they would like. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a very affluent part of the community that can go into a grocery store and see that ground beef is X dollars a pound and grass-fed ground beef is, you know, 1.75x, so whatever that looks like. So, so we are shifting, right? Organic agriculture and healthy, sustainable seafood has a price point that currently is not available to every consumer who cares about the environment. And I think slowly, as we put more and more pressure on governance to think about the long-term environmental impacts of how we're raising beef in this country, we're going to see a greater interest in how we can raise beef to look a little bit more 
thoughtful to act a little bit more on behalf of the long-term concerns that, that we should have, and healthier choices will be made. And, you know, some people would say, oh, my gosh, uh, shakes, fries, burgers. Wow, that sounds like it's a recipe for a heart attack. But I know other people have an idea that if they're really high-quality ingredients, they'll satisfy you more. What what are your thoughts on using high-quality ingredients for what's seen as casual food? Well, I think high-quality ingredients belong in every type of cooking as chefs think about food. There's no question that eating at Burger Bar every day is not a recipe for weight loss. But I think it's better to know that today I'm having fries and burger, I'm going to a fried chicken place, but I'm not being told it's non-fat yogurt. <laughs> and, and, and I don't mean to criticize the frozen yogurt world. And it'll satisfy you in a different way than non-fat yogurt. Yeah, but, but we know that, you know, we know that sugar in non-fat desserts is worse for us than good fat. And a certain amount of animal fat in our diet and a certain amount of potato and carbohydrate in our diet um, is part of the enjoyment of food. And I always love that comparison of calories between a cheeseburger and a Caesar salad, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's not about calories. It's about the, the, the type of calories and the quantity of those things. And I think that you know, people need balance and joy in their life, and there's no question that pizza and hamburgers and fried chicken and ice cream have become part of the joy in someone's culinary experience for many people. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a moderation thing. I don't expect to see our even our best guests here five days a week. Chef Michael Kornick, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. That was WBEZ's Monica Eng and her Food Mondays segment. Hope you can join us next week for Monica's segment on Food Mondays. And here's something fun. Uh, what about this summer? What are you looking forward to doing in Chicago this summer? Go to wbez.org summer and give your recommendation for things to do this summer. We'll be sharing them with listeners. wbez.org summer. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about ISIS. It forcibly recruited children, and some of those children are now being convicted in Iraq rather than being rehabilitated. We'll talk with Human Rights Watch about that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.